0: Well, uh, what a week. eh? Um, I thought that um, our paper was going to be uh, bang up to date uh, this week, not only with a a day one commentary on um, Liz Truss's uh, government, uh, but even um, a commentary on Ukraine's offensive, and not only in the south, uh, but also in the east. And then we have uh, the death of um, Elizabeth uh, Windsor. And um, well, the whole the whole of the news um, has been uh, wall-to-wall uh, funeral and uh, royalist and um, general sycophancy. And I have to confess that uh, I can only take my news in tiny, tiny little bits. Uh, before switching off. And even when I retreat, as is my norm, to Radio 3, it too uh, is dominated by um, QE2, Queen Elizabeth uh, II, you know, her um, musicians, the music that she listened to, the music that was composed while she was alive, etc., 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 OK, well, the first thing I would say uh, in terms of uh, my response is certainly not to, um, you know, leap for joy. You know, here's a, an old woman, 96 years old, and uh, I, I'm certainly not um, celebrating her death. There are very few people, I have to confess, if anybody, uh, that I want to uh, see dead. Uh, I didn't leap with joy when Thatcher died. You know, she was a senile old woman. Um, and really, um, so on a human level and on a political level, um, th- there's nothing uh, to celebrate. After all, the very nature of monarchy uh, is that there's always a replacement. Okay, so what do we, what do we get in terms of um, the news Basically, we're told that uh, she led an extraordinary life. Well, I think that does need qualifying. That uh, that doesn't mean, at least in my view, that she was an extraordinary uh, woman. Um, I'm not saying that she was typical for her class, but she was typical of a certain sort uh, of her of her class. I was just reading uh, in terms of her final days in. Balmoral, uh, and what she was doing. She was watching TV, not any old uh, TV, but racing, uh, reading, um, sporting life. And uh, quite frankly, you know, her, you know, her main passion in life was uh, horses and horse racing. And I suppose coming a second would be corgi uh, dogs. That's actually uh, what the woman was um, interested in you know, what um, animated uh, her. But yes, yeah, she did live uh, an extraordinary uh, life, um, a gilded life, a caged uh, life. Uh, someone who was surrounded by servants, who was brought up not uh, by two parents, but by a whole number of uh, different nannies and uh, governesses, Um, yes you know what did her life consist of I haven't got a clue in terms of you know how much time it took up but a considerable amount of her time would be taken up with official duties Uh, what would those official duties be opening things she must have opened you know thousands and thousands uh, of uh, buildings and gardens and I don't know what Uh, She must have spent ages, you know, seeing people uh, come to her in order to be given a knighthood or some gong uh, or uh, uh, another. Uh, Yes, she had uh, audiences with um, a whole string of uh, prime ministers going back to uh, Winston Churchill. I don't know what they uh, talked about. I certainly believe that she was committed to um great britain as a as a state i don't think there's any uh, doubt uh, about that but she lived a peculiar uh, life and you have to say that um, uh, the house of windsor um, uh, um, uh, is a peculiar uh, family Uh, and that's what she was a, a product of we all know the history uh, Edward VIII, because uh, he wanted to marry a divorcee, shock horror. Mrs. Uh, Simpson um, was basically told to uh, abdicate. That was, you know, uh, marrying a divorcee barred him uh, from being um, the monarch. Um, hence, we had uh, her father unexpectedly uh, becoming a king. Um, either way. Um, This is clearly a peculiar uh, family. All we need to do, again, is look at her children, four of them, again, brought up, you know, in the main by nannies and governors and governesses, um, surrounded uh, by servants, living a highly unnatural uh, uh, life. Um, If we look at um, who uh, she married... Uh, Philip Battenberg, um, which changed its name, of course, just like the Windsors did from Saxe-Coburg. The Battenbergs changed their name to Montbatten. They Anglicized themselves. Nevertheless, if we look at who she married, she did something pretty typical uh, for her end, the top end of the aristocracy, married into uh, the aristocracy. Worth noting... Uh, that Phillips' sisters all married into the Nazi regime, the German Nazi regime. He was different. Uh, He backed the right side, uh, the British Empire, and uh, what was to become the replacement hegemon, the United States. Um, He was clearly a dynamic um, uh, individual. He was no fool. Um, he actually was interested in art, uh, could write, um, but if we look at uh, his children, um, it has to be said that um, you know they don't exactly um, uh, glitter, uh, uh, do they? All we need to do is look at uh, Charles uh, Windsor. He must have had a horrible, horrible uh, childhood and uh, early years. Um, his father, and I think it was his father. Uh, ensured that uh, he was sent to Gordonston, that's a a public school, uh, what others um, abroad would call a private school in Scotland, but particularly known uh, for its sport and its uh, rugged uh, ethos, you know, I suspect cold showers and uh, early morning runs, something that definitely didn't uh, suit uh, uh, Charles as a, you know, physically as a human being. Uh, Nor academically. And uh, what we uh, know of him is he he comes out of Gordonstone uh, with two uh, A levels. Um, I think one was in French, one was in art, I think. Well, no, it was history actually. Here I've got it written down. Uh, He got a B and a C and ended up in Cambridge uh, of all uh, universities. So, in spite of his incredibly privileged. Uh, background. Um, he was no intellectual. I know when um, we've covered in the Weekly Worker, um, you know, the wayward uh, Prince uh, Andrew, uh, um, Charles has been described in our, in our pages as a, an intellectual. And when I wrote to the uh, author of the article saying, Are you really saying uh, that Charles Windsor is an intellectual? He, he wrote back to me and said, Well, yeah, compared with um, Andrew, he is uh, an intellectual, and you have to uh, concede uh, that particular uh, uh, that particular uh, point. But also, again, if we just take a step back and uh, look at this uh, family, having mentioned uh, Philip's um, uh, sisters, uh, this remember was a uh, I think it was a Danish uh, Germanic. Uh, Um, sort of part of the aristocracy that was given Greece uh, to be the monarch over. Um, Either way, it's a typical European aristocrat. And having said that uh, Philip uh, backed um, the right side uh, in World War II, we shouldn't forget uh, that if we look at uh, Edward VIII, um, when he was uh, a prince, when he was Prince of Wales, Uh, When we look at uh, the Windsors, um, it has to be said that um, there's more than strong evidence of their sympathy uh, for the Nazi regime. And of course, that's something that was widespread amongst the upper classes uh, in Britain. Churchill famously welcomed uh, Mussolini's march on Rome and the fascist regime. Why? Why? Uh, because the reds were crushed and in a similar fashion actually churchill and along with a lot of others including a lot of the windsor's also welcomed the rise and uh, uh, the triumph uh, of the hitler regime in 1933 and of course there are the famous photographs of uh, edward uh, the 8th uncle um, of the present queen along with um, his wife uh, Mrs. Simpson, along with the two uh, um, children, uh, um, i.e. Elizabeth and uh, Margaret, uh, giving the stiff arm uh, salute. Again, it should be pointed out that uh, when we had the, um, was it, 1936 Olympics, there are again notorious photographs of the England football team uh, doing uh, the same thing but clearly what we're dealing with here isn't a diplomatic protocol uh, we're clearly dealing with political sympathy. so politically uh, this family has to be and you know uh, I don't think we're giving away any secrets here uh, it is on the far right uh, of um, politics then and now um, what else can we say uh, yes, a peculiar life uh, these people lived. So, for example, uh, the younger sister of the departed monarch uh, famously fell uh, in love with, um, let me get his name right, Peter Townsend. I sort of vaguely remember it from my childhood. He was a sort of glamorous, I don't know whether he was a fighter pilot or bomber uh, pilot, but, uh, you know, uh, RAF. They refused to let him marry. uh, Let him let him marry uh, the princess. Why? Uh, For the same reason as Edward VIII, because uh, you couldn't marry uh, someone who is divorced, Um, and therefore she ended up marrying, from my memory, uh, a commoner, um, Snowden, who was elevated uh, uh, afterwards. Uh, And of course, that marriage uh, ended in. Uh, a divorce. If we talk about uh, Philip, it's worthwhile just mentioning um, again, um, his um, experience from what we gather. Um, and that is the Queen becomes the Queen at the age of 27. Um, I, you know, I'd guess that was be something that was very unexpected. Uh, her father died of lung cancer died early. And from his point of view, um, he suddenly found himself as the guy when it comes to opening things, when it comes to investing someone, when it comes to official speeches and dinners and that endless round of official duties. He was always the guy uh, one step uh, behind and also had to observe in spite of his uh, um, sometimes, uh, you know, Embarrassing um, uh, utterances, you know, basically had to observe the same sort of diplomatic silence um, um, as, as the monarch. And it's not surprising, under those circumstances, there are very strong rumors of uh, affairs, either of a long standing uh, nature or of uh, a more brief uh, nature. So they lived a very strange uh, life. It was both a life lived in public. Uh, but it was also a life surrounded uh, in secrecy. And so, again, uh, this is something I'm sort of dredging up. I've never read it, I hasten to add. But there was a, um, uh, a an insight book, and again, I can't remember its name, but the author was um, called Marion Crawford. Crawfy. She was a governess um, or a nanny, I'm not quite sure. I think a governess. I think she was the nice governess uh, to the queen. That when uh, the queen grew up, um, she was um, moved aside, but went ahead and published a book, which, you know, uh, as a result of which she was basically excommunicated uh, by the um, by the Windsor uh, um, uh, family. And apparently, all that she let out. Um, that um, was embarrassing to the Windsors was that the former king um, had a bad temper uh, and expressed himself in, in no uncertain terms during the course uh, of World War II. There's certainly nothing uh, shocking, nothing, um, you know, <laughs> scandalous uh, in, in terms of the book, but the royal family, at least at that point, uh, was determined to keep its affairs um, a secret. Uh, from um, the public, and that was a deliberate um, strategy uh, that um, uh, the royal family was both to be you know, possession of the public, but at the same time, shrouded in uh, mystery um, from um, um, uh, the public. Okay, so just again, uh, looking at this uh, rather dysfunctional family, we have to mention uh, the first wife of uh, the now king, King Charles III, Diana Spencer, and how basically they were um, pushed uh, together, uh, because what you need with a monarchy is at the very least an heir and a spare. And Charles was uh, clearly in line to be the next king, and therefore he needed a wife. And that wife, had, at least in those days, to be above Uh, reproach. So she was a virgin, didn't have a history of boyfriends, wild parties. Uh, She was a very shy and uh, withdrawn um, um, individual. Um, And this was meant to be the ideal match uh, for Charles. One of the aristocracy, yes. Um, But of course, it didn't turn out uh, that way. As I think uh, Diana herself famously said, there were three in the marriage uh, to start with. And of course, what we're in line for now, and I think she's most likely already got the title, um, what we've now got is Queen Camilla, but Queen Consort. Um, So clearly uh, you are allowed now uh, to marry uh, a divorcee. Anyway, uh, my purpose isn't so much to look at uh, this family. Um, I think you can go along with um, Tolstoy and uh, say, you know, uh, each unhappy family is unhappy in its own unique way. And clearly, when we take the unhappy Windsor family, uh, my God, it is uh, unique. There is no other family on the face of the planet uh, that is like uh, uh, the Windsors. Whether his uh, opening dictum is correct, that all happy families are all the same. Uh, I think that's a a debatable uh, question. But certainly the Windsors, yes, are unique, uh, uniquely unhappy uh, in their own way. But what I wanted to do is move it on uh, to uh, politics and just ask the question, just ask the question. Will it make any difference um, that uh, we now have instead of QE2, uh, we have Charles? Uh, the third. Well, in fundamental terms, my argument is straightforward. And, you know, I've been consistent um, in that it was obvious. It's obvious that we're all going to die. And when you get into your 90s, it's obvious that uh, death is going to be, relatively speaking, soon. You know, uh, large numbers now yeah, live over 100, uh, but not that many. Either way, my argument is no Uh, We are not going to see any fundamental change whatsoever. It will be superficial. So, yes, in Britain, when we look at our banknotes, our coins, our stamps, uh, the um, do they call it the national anthem or is it still the royal anthem? I'm never quite sure. Either way, you're now going to be required if you, you know, you're in establishment politics, mainstream politics to sing God save the king as opposed to God save the queen, the names of regiments, various regiments will be uh, altered. And there will be changes, of course, um, uh, you know, um, you know, uh, of that sort. Uh, but will there be anything um, more than that? Um, as I said, my argument always has been no, uh, I don't see the death of the queen uh, then being the threshold uh, for a republic and a radical uh, shift in Britain to the left or anything like that, I, I, I don't buy into that um, uh, idea whatsoever. And I think what we need to do is separate um, the concept of the monarch uh, as an individual, i.e. Elizabeth uh, Windsor, as someone who died uh, uh, by moral at the age of 96, and the individual Charles, who got his two A-levels, went to Cambridge, served in um, the RAF and the Royal Navy, went to Gordonston, and all the rest of it. We need to separate these individuals um, from the monarchy um, as an institution. My basic argument is that uh, while monarchs have a certain power that power uh, is uh, in reality, um, minor, Uh, it's trivial. So for example, uh, and I'm just fielding this as an example of something that potentially, theoretically could happen. So for example, in Belgium, apparently uh, the King of Belgium refused to sign some law um, or some act into law uh, that allowed uh, a woman to have an abortion. Uh, for example. Well Belgium is a very funny country, Um, you know, I I think it's got the world record for uh, a country without a government. Um, Either way, uh, the way they found around it was quite interesting, and that is they allowed the king to abdicate for a day. So (laughs) I don't know who signed uh, the act into law, uh, but it wasn't the king, it wasn't this Catholic uh, king, uh, that had to do that, they sort of excused him. Now, there, there was a play, or is a play. I didn't go and see it, and I don't know much about it, and I can't remember who wrote it. Um, but it was on in the west end of um, London, and I think it was just called King Charles III, or Charles III. And the, the basic uh, conceit of the play was that um, King Charles III, he's, he's facing a authoritarian government, Uh, that wants to ban press freedom, and um, King Charles won't sign the act banning press freedom or or media freedom uh, into law. And that's the crisis uh, that uh, the new king uh, faces. Well, in my humble opinion, uh, given the background that I've uh, painted out, uh, I don't believe that a King Charles III, uh, in terms of his family background, Uh, would stand up for media, for press, freedom, for the freedom of uh, speech. I I think quite the opposite, in fact. And indeed, although I haven't seen this play, I have had (laughs) the dubious pleasure uh, of reading HRH's uh, book um, on uh, ecology and nature and uh, his world outlook. And what he says, he actually begins his book by saying what he's calling for is a revolution. And what it turns out to be in terms of his call for a re- jointly, His book, by the way, is jointly uh, written by with two other authors. So I, I, he, he doesn't pretend that the, these are all his own ideas. He obviously approves of them, though. Uh, he begins with, yes, I'm calling for a revolution. I'm calling for a revolution uh, against everything that's been accepted for the last 200 years. Now, part of that, yes... Uh, it is about the ecological uh, crisis. But what he actually rejects is the Enlightenment. Uh, what he actually rejects is democracy. Uh, what he's actually standing for is some sort of um, um, return to feudalism, uh, where everyone supposedly knew their place and everyone was in their place. And uh, the job of those at the top of society was to look after Uh, the less well-off, but it was their birthright uh, to be at the top, and that is the society uh, that this individual uh, actually believes in. I don't think we'll hear much more about it, uh, but if you want to get an insight to the sort of things he thinks, go and have a look uh, at his book when he wrote it uh, as uh, the Prince uh, uh, of Wales. It's worthwhile uh, doing. So I don't see him um, you know, standing up for press freedom. Um, but the main point I want to make really is, uh, as I said, is that we need to distinguish between the individual who could potentially uh, refuse to sign some piece of legislation, some piece of, um, uh, you know, an act of parliament into law. That's, that's possible. But the reality uh, of um, individual monarchs is they're actually a servant of the system. And we need to think about the monarchy as not, as so many on the left do, some sort of antiquated feudal relic. Well, of course, it does come from feudalism. But what we're dealing with in terms of the British monarchy and most other monarchies uh, in Europe is a thoroughly reinvented uh, monarchy that's fit for capitalism. And the role of the monarchy uh, under capitalism isn't simply uh, to provide some sort of glittering facade, uh, some sort of, um, uh, how should I put it, focus uh, for national uh, loyalty. It also exists uh, as part of the capitalist states, um, how should I put it, checks and balances uh, against uh, democracy. So it's not a question of the individual Uh, tastes or particular political prejudices of a particular individual. It's the ability to use the monarchy, uh, for example, to call an individual from the House of Commons uh, to form uh, a government. So, for example, and it does take science fiction, we kept hammering home the truth uh, that if, for example, uh, something very strange had happened in 2019 in December, and uh, instead of having a Tory um, majority in the House of Commons, Jeremy Corbyn had led the Labour Party not only to a majority, but to a majority um, that was um, you know, overwhelming. Um, the truth is that uh, you know, unless there was you know, revolutionary turmoil in society, is that uh, the Privy Council would have urged Elizabeth Windsor not to call Jeremy Corbyn uh, to the palace to form a government, but someone else. For example, uh, a Keir Starmer on the basis uh, that um, Keir Starmer could command a majority um, vote amongst Labour MPs. But it goes further uh, than that. Imagine if, for example, for one reason or another, Jeremy Corbyn had been called uh, to Buckingham Palace and had formed a government. Then we were were in the midst of uh, all sorts of rumours when Jeremy Corbyn was first elected Labour leader. All sorts of rumours were uh, swirling around, not only from former uh, tops of MI5, MI6, but serving generals uh, that they wouldn't obey um, instructions from Jeremy Corbyn. And so it's worth noting, uh, of course, that the British uh, armed forces swear loyalty not to the government, uh, but to the monarch. Uh, in other words, what we have here is yet another check and balance, uh, one of many uh, that is embodied uh, within the monarchy, within the institution of the monarchy. you call it the crown, uh, uh, if you want, um, that guards uh, the system, that protects the interests uh, of the system, face, face with disturbance, faced with uh, danger. So uh, on that basis, uh, my argument is quite straightforward, uh, and that is that uh, the establishment, the ruling class, uh, the media uh, will not be working to undermine, of course it won't, uh, King Charles III, quite the opposite. It will see um, King Charles III, and that's what he will be, as a continuation Um, of Elizabeth II. Now, of course, uh, when Elizabeth II was crowned, this supposedly was the birth because uh, her name was Elizabeth of the second Elizabethan age. But of course, this was uh, when Britain was committed to social democracy. And we're talking about both uh, political parties, Tories led by Churchill, was just as committed, at least when it came to the rhetoric to the National Health Service by 1953, remember, we're talking about, to building uh, council houses, to full employment. Um, All of that uh, was the political consensus uh, of the time. So I I don't see uh, the media doing, well, this is some new glorious age that emerges with King Charles. He's 73. Uh, This isn't about uh, Britain being reinvented In the image of Charles. And of course, it was never anything to do uh, with Elizabeth. It was the results of World War II and uh, the post World War uh, boom. Uh, That was what the so called Second Elizabethan Age uh, was all uh, about. Okay. What I wanted to do uh, now is really turn to the question of um, high politics, uh, because what has how should I put it, uh, enraged uh, an awful lot of comrades um, on the left, is that uh, faced with uh, the death um, uh, of um, the monarch up there in um, Scotland, what we've had is a whole series of trade unions and uh, other um, organizations either call off their strikes or conferences or demonstrations So we've had the RMT, the Rail, Marine and Transport, ASLEF, the Train Drivers Union, I think the CWU, Communication Workers Union, uh, they've called off uh, uh, strikes. Uh, The Trade Union Congress has uh, postponed its uh, conference in Brighton. And we've even had Extinction Rebellion um, cancel uh, it's protests that were uh, due this month. Um, I think you would have to say that these uh, it's extinction royalty, uh, uh, now they don't want to upset the establishment. Um, but I think this does illustrate something. It, it shows you uh, that confronted um, with the Constitution, confronted uh, by the establishment, loyalty to the nation, loyalty uh, uh, to the Constitution. Uh, that trade union militancy can be trumped now of course not permanently not for a long time Uh, the funeral will be over soon okay then we'll be into the run-up to the coronation either way um, I just want to emphasize the role of high politics because of course if the TUC had gone ahead If the RMT had gone ahead, if the CWU had gone ahead, if Extinction Rebellion had gone ahead, it would have been in the firing line uh, of establishment uh, attacks and uh, maybe rebellion uh, in its own ranks. I'm not going to protest. I'm not going to strike. I'm certainly not going to go to a picket line uh, while we have mourning, official mourning uh, for Her Majesty. Um, And so what what it shows to me is any idea of the abolition of the monarchy requires a party, and it requires a party that's done an awful lot of work in the run-up to any death or any crisis of the monarchy that delegitimizes the monarchy, delegitimizes uh, the constitution. Um, And that means a party, yes, that, that would have no compunction, um, you know, in terms of organizing a strike or a demonstration. And I'm reminded uh, if we go back to the 19th century, uh, to the death, get me, get my kings right. I think it would be, um, and it could be wrong, but I think it was George IV um, who was before uh, Victoria. And again, this is from memory, I think Victoria went. And was became Queen Victoria, I think, 1833. I'm pushing my, my history <laughs> to tell the truth, but around about then. What was notable uh, about the funeral, uh, let me see who's saying, 1837, thank you. What was notable uh, about the funeral uh, of the dead king uh, is the London mob uh, came out and cheered and celebrated the death of this hated king. And I don't think it's any surprise uh, that what we were dealing with here is a situation of chartism and the rise uh, of chartism. Uh, Britain had put off uh, because of a historic compromise, it's bourgeois, uh, the threat of a bourgeois revolution over the vote, that was 1832. Uh, I think Conway chair, the great reform act which, of course, didn't give the vote uh, to workers, um, and hence the rise of the Chartist movement. And, of course, the Chartist movement had a respectable uh, wing, but it also had a very unrespectable uh, wing, the physical force uh, uh, Chartists. Either way, uh, the point would be uh, that what we now have um, in our present time is moral terrorism against anyone who upsets uh, official mourning, anyone who tells a joke, um, anyone who says that this is just too, too much, Um, anyone who complains, for example, uh, about the football uh, being uh, canceled. Uh, All these people put themselves uh, in line uh, for um, uh, basically a a witch hunt, and so, you know, uh, uh, my argument is that um, uh, this um, is not going to change uh, simply because you have a, a dead queen and uh, a new king. Uh, the, the establishment will carry on with its cult of monarchy uh, because it's too useful uh, to let uh, go. Okay, I want to move on. I think I've covered most of what I wanted to. Uh, to say. Okay, so we'll move on to what uh, was going to be the um, main content, of course, um, of the political report, and I'll keep uh, the rest uh, pretty brief. And of course, that's uh, the Liz Truss government. And we've got an article in this week's paper, lead article, uh, on our comment um, analysis on day one Uh, We've got a pretty good idea uh, of, um, you know, the the politics uh, that's involved, uh, the shape of the the cabinet uh, and uh, the various other ministerial uh, appointments. And of course, what is notable about it is two things that strikes you, first of all, and that is um, number one, uh, its diversity. Uh, which uh, ticks an awful lot of boxes with uh, far too many people on the left. I don't think this was a result of, well, we've got to have a black person, we've got to have an Indian person, we've got to have a woman, we've got to have... I don't think that was uh, the approach. It's true that the Tory party uh, actively did, uh, under Cameron, uh, go out to change itself, to reinvent itself. Uh, That's certainly true, and we now see the results... Um, um, of that. But what's notable, um, um, you know, uh, leave aside uh, the image uh, question of a a very diverse uh, cabinet, um, is its political uniformity. And I just think this is just worthwhile. At the moment, we've got a general election uh, going on in Sweden, and the, the expectation is that the Swedish Democrats, a far, far right party, uh, will do very well. And maybe, who knows, depending on um, the sort of constellation of different uh, political parties, maybe even ends up in government. Now, this is a party that it, that had previously been associated uh, with out-and-out out, uh, Nazis. So it's not a Nazi party, uh, but a party uh, which did contain Uh, Nazis uh, within it. And we are talking about Nazis, not just uh, fascists. So I just happened to be reading an article on the forthcoming Swedish general election and its likely result uh, by a Ethiopian Swedish uh, journalist. And this uh, journalist begins by saying, if you were in Britain and you read the Swedish Democrats manifesto, you would just think it's the Tory party. Um, and I think that's uh, no doubt true. But to me, that says something about the Swedish Democrats and how they reinvented themselves, um, how should we put it, in, in terms of detoxifying um, themselves in terms of uh, their association in the past with Nazis, with how how we should actually view the Tory party. This isn't just some, how should we put it, um, to use the usual jargon of journalism in Britain, a center-right party. The Tory party is a right-wing party. And when the Tory party used to uh, sit uh, in the European Parliament, it didn't sit, and this is is noticeable, with the traditional parties um, of the center-right. Quite the contrary. It actually, and this was under David Cameron, positioned itself uh, to sit with the parties of the far right. So, for example, um, was it Peace and Justice in um, Poland, uh, as an example? Um, Fidesz um, from um, Hungary, uh, as um, an example. Um, so this is a far right party that clearly under Liz Truss has moved further to the right. Now, I think we are too used to equating, at least in Britain, uh, public spending uh, with the left and uh, austerity uh, with the right. Uh, obviously, this is something that we associate with uh, George Osborne, uh, the Chancellor under Cameron and David Cameron, and the coalition government and the financial crisis of. 2008, 2009, and savage cuts in public spending. And so what we've got with this government, um, I presume eating words, you know, I will not give any handouts, uh, Liz Truss on the campaign trail in front of the 160,000 individual Tory party members. Well, now we've got the promise. Who knows how much uh, it will end up being, but the package that she's announced Is meant to be, as I say, no one knows the exact uh, total between 90 billion and 150 billion. This is going to be paid uh, down the line uh, by taxpayers, but nonetheless, this is a massive subsidy um, for uh, consumers, both uh, capitalist consumers and um, uh, the mass of the population uh, when it comes to winter. And I I just make the point uh, that the idea that uh, you have to be left-wing to go in for high spending. Well, have a look at Nazi Germany, or for that matter, fascist uh, Italy. Uh, These regimes were associated with large-scale public works with very high levels uh, of expenditure. So we need to understand what this party is. It is a party that's to the right now Uh, of where Boris Johnson uh, was. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, you you can get in and say this is the most right-wing since, but I think this is the most right-wing government uh, Britain has seen. I I certainly think that's a safe thing to say in modern times. Um, OK, I also just wanted to think about this. This is is sort of the last thought on the Liz Trust government uh, in terms of this political report. I mentioned the use of high politics in respect to the monarchy, and of course that can't last. Uh, you know, cost of living crisis will continue. The strikes will return. TUC will meet at some point down there in Brighton. Extinction Rebellion will have its uh, uh, protest. Uh, but what we've written about in the paper for some considerable time, and I, I think that this is a real danger, and I do mean danger. And that is that the government will, quote, unquote, bring the war back home. And of course, what I'm talking about is the Ukraine war. And um, I think myself that there's a distinct possibility, uh, not only of uh, Liz Truss doing what Boris Johnson urged. Remember when in Parliament he was giving advice to his successor, whoever he or she uh, was going to be, his first line was stick close to the Americans. And I think that will certainly be the case with Liz Truss. She will stick close to the Americans. And what that means is continue to supply Ukraine with arms. And what it will also mean is joining with Biden and Zelensky, not that Zelensky is an independent player here, um, in the war party. Uh, Biden and uh, Johnson, Biden and Truss, will not be agitating um, that Putin must settle this at the negotiating table, that what we need is a ceasefire. Um, In the words of Zelensky, we're not going to give anything up. Uh, We're going to go on, retake the South. That includes Crimea. That means uh, Russia's uh, outlet uh, um, on the Black Sea, outlet into the Mediterranean. That means Donbas. That means, I presume, um, mass repression uh, of the Russian Ukrainian people uh, in the east. And who knows what else uh, when it comes to Russia itself? You know, we all know the statements by uh, top State Department officials, by U.S. generals and Biden himself saying this man should not be allowed to stay in power in Moscow. Anyway, my main point is that I think Liz Truss, faced with precisely this uh, crisis of uh, cost of living, strikes uh, and all the rest of it, she will be sorely tempted and um, uh, I personally think, um, well, I wouldn't be surprised, should we put it like that, that you ended up with British army boots on the ground in Ukraine. I'm not talking about the front line I'm talking about in the West, but openly there in the West of Ukraine, acting as advisors, trainers uh, to the Iranian um, armed forces. And what we'll get precisely therefore is the politicization uh, of these strikes, accusations uh, that Britain is at war and we shouldn't just expect a hundred billion being forked out in terms of subsidising uh, gas and electricity uh, this winter and maybe next winter. You know, look at Scotland uh, of where you've had uh, rent controls. Uh, I wouldn't discount uh, that uh, by any means. Uh, and of course, I would also very much expect whatever Liz Truss said on the campaign tra- trail uh, rationing uh, if it's a cold uh, winter, in other words, state action, but basically uh, this will be done on the basis that Britain, to all intents and purposes, is at war. And the, problem, the precise problem is, for those that keep quiet about the um, Ukraine war, those that actually support Ukraine, those that stand uh, by the slogan self-determination and territorial integrity uh, for Ukraine, the problem is that there's the Trump card that the government will play, that if you want to stand in solidarity with Ukraine, therefore you've got to take the consequences. And amongst the consequences is that we put sanctions on Russia and we were agitating uh, to cut off Nord Stream, 1, Nord Stream 2, let me get it right, so that wasn't opened. Uh, And in retaliation, I'm being very crude here, but in retaliation, uh, Putin switches off uh, Nord Stream 1 and we see um, energy prices shoot uh, upwards. Well, the argument would be that if you stand uh, by Ukraine, you've got to be prepared to pay a price uh, for standing up uh, to Ukraine. And there's a logic there. And anyone who says that you engage in a war, even if it's a proxy war and it's all for free, that there is no suffering, uh, that's delusional and dishonest. Uh, and I'm, I'm merely saying this because, uh, you know, to be, uh, um, to be armed is to be prepared. And my expectation is uh, that uh, individuals like uh, Mick Lynch could easily be targeted um in this campaign who does he who does he admire as a politician the most james connolly someone who was a german victorious in world war one daily mail the express the times the sun imagine them and one can carry on uh into the rest of the trade union movement which side are you on are you on the side of democracy plucky ukraine territorial integrity, or the evil monster uh, in the Kremlin, and behind him, uh, a communist, in inverted commas, uh, China. So I think that the left um, ignores high politics and steers clear of high politics at its peril. Uh, those that think that the monarchy uh, will collapse with the death of... Um, Liz, too, those that think that all that matter is strikes and demonstrations. Um, I think they miss the big picture or the the rounded uh, picture anyway, in my last few minutes, give it five to ten. And that's all. I'll just touch upon uh, what's happening in Ukraine itself and at least my um, individual uh, assessment of it. We all knew, we all expected, didn't we? A Ukrainian offensive to the south, it had been waved about, it had been flagged. It's now being dressed up that this was a very, very clever uh, Ukrainian stratagem uh, to get Russia to divert troops to the south. Maybe that's the case, Uh, I don't know. Either way, what we have is an attack to the south that uh, has made very little difference. A few villages, and it really is a few, um, last time I read, it was three villages in the south that had fallen. On the other hand, when it comes to the eastern front, remember we're not talking about Donbass here, we're talking about the north uh, of uh, the Donbass, uh, we see some progress and we're not talking about villages, uh, we're talking about towns uh, being taken uh, by the Ukrainian uh, forces. now. Uh, In terms of my recent article in the Weekly Worker, I've quoted this um, rule, um, three to one rule, um, that an attacking side needs um, numerical superiority. Um, And the mathematical formula, and it's all been worked out, by the way, mathematically, uh, is three to one. Um, Well, okay, And then you get into the more complex things that you have to discount, artillery. Uh, you have to discount tanks, you have to discount drones, and all the rest of it. Nonetheless, as a general rule of thumb, um, an attacking army will need superiority. And at least in terms of what I've read, uh, that doesn't exist on either front. Uh, That what you're dealing with is more or less a situation of parity. Uh, That in terms of numbers, in terms of troops, uh, you're dealing one-to-one. When you're dealing with tanks and planes and artillery pieces, Russia has overwhelming superiority. Of course, what we have is Ukraine being massively supplied now uh, by America, by Britain, uh, by other European powers, but it clearly is the United States uh, that's the main player here, ploughing in uh, uh, arms. And that and Ukrainian morale uh, clearly... Um, has played uh, an important role in the ability of Ukraine to go on the defensive. So I think it's right uh, to talk about this war so far, having three phases. Phase one, the attempt to surround Kiev, to capture Kiev. That failed. Uh, Russia's armies have to retreat back north. Phase two went better for Russia. Not spectacular progress, grinding, grinding. Uh, but progress in the south, uh, more rapid uh, progress, so breaking out of um, Crimea, um, not getting uh, to Odessa, not cutting off uh, Ukraine from the sea, but nonetheless considerable progress uh, by the Russian armed forces, and now a Ukrainian counteroffensive on two fronts. Now, my own assessment for what it's worth unless the morale of the Russian army breaks, um, there will be no decisive uh, breakthrough. Uh, There will be no um, scuttling uh, of um, Russian troops. On the other hand, uh, what we're dealing with when we talk about morale is not only the morale of the fighting troops, which matters very, very much, but also the morale of ruling circles. You know, if Ukraine had lost, uh, back in February, that wouldn't have caused a crisis for the Joe Biden presidency uh, in Washington. It would have been a setback, uh, but nothing more. Uh, but if uh, Russian troops uh, start to retreat as opposed to advance, and we see more and more Ukrainian flags, you know, raise over more and more, not only villages, but towns, are, I think uh, there will be a crisis in the Kremlin. Uh, now, it's inevitable, just like with Elizabeth II, that uh, people depart. And uh, um, I think it's quite conceivable, if that happens, uh, to see the departure of um, Vladimir uh, Putin. Now, whether that means regime change, uh, that's a different matter entirely. You know, the first stage would be the FSB. Uh, basically retiring uh, Vladimir Putin to a sanatorium and maybe then saying, well, this was his war. Of course, it wasn't just his war. Uh, It was theirs. But they could conceivably put forward the idea that this was just the act of an individual. He's now been retired, uh, you know, with honours, but he's ill or something along uh, those lines. And some sort of suing uh, for peace, for negotiations. You know, we give up all of Ukraine, but we want to negotiate a deal with Sebastopol or something like that. Now, under those circumstances, uh, my conviction for what it's worth is that Joe Biden, uh, along with uh, now um, Liz Truss, will not go and say, yes, we're perfectly satisfied. We've had this bust up. Um, We forgive it all. Uh, I think they will go for regime change, and I mean regime change in Moscow, which means getting in a Nalvani, uh, an equivalent of um, Yeltsin uh, back there you know, in 1991, uh, and going for the degrading of the Russian Federation when it comes to arms, maybe the dismemberment uh, of the Russian Federation in order to prevent it um, simply falling into the sphere of China. And then um, if that's successful, moving on uh, to deal with China uh, itself. OK. Um, yeah. Um, but of course, whether that happens, <laughs> uh, that's another matter entirely. But that's that's how I see things going. I don't see a Russian victory. I think that's very unlikely. It's not impossible, but I think it's very unlikely. Um it's not that I'm predicting a Ukrainian victory. I think you know the chances are uh, that we're dealing with a stalemate that suddenly something goes uh, in Moscow. Um, and I think that's the calculation um, of the uh, Biden uh, administration, which goes way back in terms of their strategic planning. And with that, I will draw to a close. Thank you, Kevin.